Well, as we continue in messages from the, from the Messiah, uh, the next text that Handel used was Haggai, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. So uh, those of you who have a chance to open that up if you're not wanting to look at the screen. And I'm actually going to read a little more than that, so um, context helps sometimes. In the seventh month, on the 21st year of the uh, 21st day of the month, the word came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, I can't pronounce it Hebrew today, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as, some, as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the, of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, uh, help me to proclaim Jesus uh, with all wisdom, admonishing and teaching in order to present these people mature in Christ according to your good purposes. Uh, strengthen me for this great task. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you saw pictures of the National Palace for Haiti, I'd never been inside, but outside it looked pretty impressive. Okay? Uh, Enid is nodding with great affirmation, so we'll trust her on this particular point. Well, that all changed in a day in 2010, because an earthquake came, and the National Palace, which was sort of uh, a symbol of the greatness and the glory of Haiti, crumbled almost to the earth. It collapsed in upon itself. It was so badly damaged by that earthquake that in uh, 2012, they decided to demolish it. And so, if you go, it is no more. Something similar had happened to the people of Israel, and Haggai is beginning to speak to that problem. Now, 
there are two verses that Handel isolates from this larger text uh, for his uh, song, The Messiah. His, uh, well, it's not really a song. It's a whole work. But what is the context of these two verses that Handel used? And we find here that Haggai, the prophet, has spoken to the people who have returned from exile after the Cyrus Edict. Remember, for those of you maybe who don't know, there's the Babylonian exile where Nebuchadnezzar comes down, defeats Israel, and not just because... He's stronger, but because the Lord in judgment for the apostasy of his people in Judah brought judgment upon them and kept his covenant curses and brought them to a foreign land, scattered them, so to speak, amongst the nations. But he also gave them this hope of promise, saying that there was going to be a king by the name of Cyrus who would call them back and enable them to go back into the land of Judah. And so uh, when the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians, we see that there was a king whose name was Cyrus. And he, declared, he made an edict and said that they could all go home. And in fact, they did. When Haggai speaks now, Cyrus is no longer the king of the Medes and the Persians. But Darius is now seated upon that throne. Haggai, the prophet, okay, is addressing Joshua, the great high priest, and Zerubbabel, who though he's the governor of Judah at this point in time, is serving in that capacity under the authority of the Medes and the Persians, but He is a descendant of David who was supposed to become king. And so the prophet is speaking to the priests and the king this important message. Let's keep that in mind for a moment. He's speaking precisely because the once glorious temple still remains in shambles. Cyrus and his edict had made a provision for the rebuilding of this temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and the fact remains that it had not happened yet. In other words, Joshua and Zerubbabel had been negligent in fulfilling their duties on behalf of God and behalf of the people. The people themselves have continually neglected God's house. And so we have this interesting thing that's taking place here in Haggai. We have that they are still God's people. They're back in the promised place, but they are lacking the place of worship which represents his presence among them. And it's in the midst of this, what should be a true existential crisis, Haggai speaks to them. Haggai says three times, be strong. He says that to Zerubbabel. He says that to Joshua. But he also says it to the people. So there's this threefold for emphasis, be strong, all of you. 
They needed to be strong precisely because discouragement can rob us of strength. God offers to give strength in the place of that discouragement. Why would they be discouraged? I imagine coming back home to Judah was very discouraging because this is how we function oftentimes. Um, Have you ever been away from home for a really long time, like decades? And you've, you've built it up into your minds as something great. And then you go home and there's the reality that cannot meet what you've built in your mind. Well, they haven't just gone back home. They've gone back to a home that was laid waste by Babylon and laid essentially desolate for decades. I mean, it's like imagining a beautiful place and going home and to some of the deserted parts of, say, a city like Detroit. Wow. We came all of these miles for this. We've just come. How are we going to rebuild this? And so the people had struggled to build their own homes, and the people had struggled to rebuild God's temple like they were supposed to. And so it's in the midst of that discouragement that God speaks this word to them to be strong. Not only be strong, but he says, fear not, or don't be afraid. It was time for them to stop living in fear. It was time for them to no longer be afraid but to remember that even though the house has not been built, God is not absent from them because he specifically says, I am with you by my Spirit. You don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. I have not abandoned you. I have not forgotten you. I am not neglecting you. Don't be afraid. These things that fill you with fear, need not do so. Remember, brothers and sisters, from our our previous lessons uh, from the Messiah, their sins had been pardoned. It manifested in the return from exile. However, their present disobedience was limiting their fellowship with God. Their present disobedience was limiting their experience of the blessings of God. It's similar to when we talk about the doctrine of assurance. It doesn't mean you're not saved, but your experience of God's smile, your experience of communion with God or fellowship with God can wane. Your your assurance of salvation may wane because when you are stuck in sin, when you're caught in habitual sin, or experience grievous temptations. Okay. If you think I'm 
not so sure about that, well, I invite you to go back to the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and look in the chapter on assurance of salvation and you'll see these things that are there. And it's not talking about our union with Christ, but talking about our communion with Christ, our experience of his fellowship can wane and be cold when we're disobedient, even though we're still saved. And so these were people who were discouraged, and that discouragement led to disobedience. In this particular case, it was the sin of uh, sins of omission, not sin, necessarily sins of commission. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and this led to a diminished experience of blessing in the presence of God. And so as we begin to enter into this text that Handel uses. Discouragement diminishes our experience of God's blessing. I want us to remember this. Because it's true. When we're discouraged, we don't feel blessed by God. Our experience of those blessings. And some of you have been very discouraged lately. And I want you you to remember, he's still with us. Be strong. Don't be afraid. He continues with us. Now, what does God promise to do for them? Because, okay, great God, you've made this promise. We're supposed to be strong. We're not supposed to be afraid. Uh, How are you going to help us? What's the tangible stuff that's going to happen? And what's interesting to me is that in this passage, in these two verses, God reveals himself twice, okay, as the Lord of hosts, or better, probably better translated, the Lord of armies. But that, that's just in those two verses. As we, as we think about the nine verses that I read, he reveals himself that way six times. He really wants the, the returned exiles to understand he is the God of armies. They don't have to be afraid because the one who has the strongest army you could ever imagine is with them. They don't have to worry about some other nation coming in and squashing them like a bug because God is encamped around them. There's a sense in which he's bringing this up because there's a, the spiritual war that is going on and he wants to reassure them that they are secure in a way that their own armies, which they currently lacked, could never do. Think of it this way. At the end of World War II, Japan was prohibited from having their own military. Who protected them? We did. They didn't have to fear that they would be invaded because our nation had promised to protect them. And that's what God's saying. You don't have to worry about the fact you don't have your own army. 
the Lord of armies is here. And he says to them, once more, I will shake the heavens and earth. And he, meaning he previously had done this. Actually, he had done this numerous times. But in particular, he had previously shaken Israel. But now he's going to do something else. Shake. This verb is used for earthquakes. This verb is used for marching armies that make the ground shake underneath them, the trampling of horses. This past week, we had a storm. The thunder was so loud that I could feel my house shake. And my neighbor's car alarm kept going off. (laughs) The shaking was so strong. Don't our houses shake when something heavy falls? And that is what we find, I think, here when God shows up. Because that word glory, kabod, has something to do with weightiness. And when God shows up, he, in a sense, tosses his weight around, and everything responds to it as though something humongous has fallen upon the earth. And so it shakes like an earthquake uh, that shook Haiti and has shaken many other places. In fact, uh, Philippines, I think, just had an earthquake. He says he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake the seas and the land. And this is just what we find in Hebrew poetry. The technical term is a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. For those of you who care about these literary devices, for those who don't, don't sweat it. It means that the whole is represented by the extremes. So when he says heaven and earth, he's referring to them and everything in between is going to be shaken. When he speaks about the seas and the land, everything in between, inclusive, is going to be shaken. There's no place in his creation that is going to be exempt from this shaking down that's about to take place. But it's not just creation. Because he says, I will shake all the nations. So that the treasure, the treasures of all nations will come into me. Let's do a rabbit trail. We need to do a rabbit trail because if you have the Messiah going through your head and you're thinking about how he utilizes this passage, or if you've read John Newton, you're wondering wait a minute, something's wrong. We've got a different thing going on here. Okay, They follow the Vulgate, which was the, the Latin scriptures. Okay, And typically, what it's translated as, is you can see it in the King James and the New King James, the desire of the nations. Okay? And it was interpreted largely in the medieval church 
And we see Martin Luther follow, uh, following in, along with this particular interpretation of this passage as, as explicitly messianic and referring to Jesus as the desire of the nations. And that's why Handel picks it up and utilizes it in his piece of music. What we see is some difficult Hebrew because one of the problems is there's a disagreement between the number in the verb and the number in the noun. It's a singular verb and it's a plural noun. Calvin and an increasing number of people after him, which which is also going to be manifested in the fact that um, numerous translations, modern translate NAS, the New American Standard, the ESV, the NIV, the New Living Translation, which is a real translation, just about anything you can imagine, translates it not as the desire of the nations, but the treasure or the wealth of the nations. That what Haggai has in mind here, what God is speaking about here, is not the, the, the promise directly of the Messiah, but rather the promise that what's going to come to make the new temple a reality is the treasure of the nations. That fits this passage better. That fits the expanded teaching of Scripture better. For instance, in this passage, God speaks explicitly about the fact that the gold and the silver are mine. They might be in stewardship of the nations, but God is going to shake them like a piggy bank (laughs) so that what's inside comes out and will be utilized to beautify or glorify His temple, His house. And so God is not, was not speaking to the, the, the returned Hebrews saying, you know, uh, dig deep into your pockets until we get this thing built. What he's saying is, is I'm going to provide the resources from the nations so that this will get done. He's going to use the plunder of the nations to get this done. Why the plunder of the nations? Well, in part because the nations plundered them. We see, uh, for instance, in Isaiah 39, and this is not the only example we have of this, but in Isaiah 39 we have the promise, the curse, the judgment that was promised. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So in Isaiah 39, we had the promise that when when Nebuchadnezzar comes, everything of value was going to be shipped up to Babylon. This had happened before um, in a, a number of different occasions, but now it was total, complete, nothing left. When God had shook Judah, their wealth went to the other nations. But now God is going to shake the nations and give them the wealth of the nations. For instance, Second Chronicles 36, which we mentioned last week, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now catch that. He's charged Cyrus with building the house. Cyrus is supposed to kick in for the building of the house. In Ezra 6, we see, And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that's in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, okay, there's your Isaiah 39, okay, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. And then in verse 8, Moreover, I make a decree regarding them that you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid by these men, in, oh, sorry, to these men, the elders of the Jews, in full and without delay from the royal income, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And so what is going on in Ezra 6 is that all of these people who are complaining about the Jews rebuilding their temple after the exile were going to have to give their tribute to Persia, not to Persia anymore, but they were to pay for the building of the temple that they didn't want. That's what God does. That's what he did. We see also in another prophet from this period, Zechariah, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. So we find the same idea here in Haggai. Because God says right here, I will fill this house with glory. It's a shambles now. You, You wouldn't be proud of it now, especially compared to the glorious temple of Solomon, he's saying, but I will fill it with glory. And not just would he do that, but the, the future glory would exceed the past glory. God was going to glorify his house in such a measure that it exceeded that even of the temple of Solomon. The gold and the silver, as I said, are his. The future glory will exceed the past glory. He's also going to grant shalom or peace. He is going to shake the nations. He is going to defeat them. And he's going to protect his people and his house or temple. And so we see that God glorifies his house with the wealth of the nations. Okay? That's really good. If I was a Jewish person living in, in Jerusalem at that point in time, that would be very encouraging. Well, what do I do with this? <laughs> How does this text, what does this text mean with regard to Jesus? Okay? Let me start by hitting the, the rewind button on my own life. I'm in seminary, it's 1991. I had been, before that, I, I had been uh, sort of steeped in dispensationalism, and I'd begun to realize that that didn't connect with the scriptures like I thought it did. 
I started to see issues and problems. And I go to seminary, and uh, I have no idea what they're teaching in terms of eschatology and all that fun kind of stuff. And one of my first classes is Gospels, and my professor makes us read uh, an article by Edmund Clowney called The Final Temple. I was not ready for the final temple. (laughs) I still, in my mind, had this idea that there's going to be a temple built in my future. I no longer have this mindset. I was shook when I read this, and I was not willing to believe what I read. And that was, you know, I had to respond. I had to write a paper of response. And um, there is much in that response paper that I have since recanted of. (laughs) I was not like Martin Luther. Okay, at the Diet of Worms, uh, I was, I'm no longer convinced that those things were true. And what we find, and what Clowney brings forward here, is that the final temple is not a physical temple, but it is Jesus. For instance, in John 2.19, when Jesus talks about, tear this temple down, and I will build it up in a, in a third day, he's talking about himself. He's not talking about that earthly thing, that that sign of God's presence. He's talking about the real presence of God, Him. Self, should I say. Not only that, but as we mentioned briefly in Sunday school this morning, the living stones were built upon the cornerstone. Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're built upon Jesus, this living stone, as living stones into a living spiritual house or temple. Jesus is the great high priest of this new living temple. Jesus is the one sufficient sacrifice that brings peace to his people in a way that the blood of goats and bulls never could. And we see that the nations are going to bring their wealth to this Jesus for this house. There's a reason we read from Matthew chapter 2 this morning, and that is because the Magi, these people most likely from Persia, travel all the way from Persia to go to meaningless Bethlehem to bow down before the greater son of David. And they pay homage to him as the the future king of Israel and beyond, and they give him the wealth, or a sampling of the wealth of their people. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. The beginning of the shaking was happening. The greater shakening was happening. And so uh, these magi represent the nations that Jesus is going to conquer with his gospel, not with a sword, but with his gospel. And as this gospel spreads, and as nations believe, their wealth comes into Christ's kingdom. And they build not large cathedrals, Oh, they did that too. Uh, That's not what they were called to build. Okay? But that's what we people like to do. 
but his kingdom, his church, his people. It comes in through tithes and offerings, freely given. Why do I want to say freely given? Because plunder is usually not freely given. But what we see is that Jesus, as, as Paul talks about in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, he became poor that he might enrich others. And so uh, Jesus, as, the, uh, as God in the flesh, reveals the generosity of God. And, and Jesus, in his heavenly ministry, intends to make his people generous people. That it's not only that he's generous, but that as he makes us like himself, we're going to become generous. He works by His Spirit so that we willingly give to the church, so that we willingly give to other people who are in need. We were talking in our combined meeting the other night, and Boyer had joked about how we needed an end-of-the-year giving sermon. I've never done one of those. (laughs) He was joking, by the way. Just joking. (laughs) Yeah. But that's normal in a lot of churches. They're behind budget. They panic. And here comes the sermon. Um, and as I look ahead for our future, I'm not panicking, but I, you know, as we're going to present some vision, there's a challenge there. I don't want to say, um, give, 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 give. I want to say, trust the God who makes us generous. It was oft said of the early Christians that they were monogamous with their bodies, but promiscuous with their wallets. Whereas most of the people around them had it the other way around, promiscuous with their bodies and monogamous with their wallets, keeping their money to themselves. The early Christians were known in large part for their incredible generosity of the way in which they took care of the poor, and the way in which they emptied themselves for orphans, the abandoned children, and everything else. They took care of their widows. Uh, They didn't require them to find a husband in two years, as uh, Roman law had for them. They were generous. And they were generous because the generous God had begun a work in them and was making them generous. And so, as we think about a living temple as opposed to, uh, you know, buildings, um, the living temple's glory is not about fountains. I've, I've seen churches with fountains in them, big fountains, wall-sized fountains. It's not about gold fixtures. I've been in cathedrals before, and you see the, the gold plating everywhere, and, and you just, it's not about, that's not the real glory. That's the fake glory. The real glory is about lives that have been changed by Jesus, lives that reflect the fruit of the Spirit. That's the real glory. That's what God is going to adorn His new living temple with. But 
It's sort of like those infomercials, not the infomercials, but you know, when you can buy the bamboo steamer. Wait, there's more. Okay. Remember those Old Testament references in Isaiah 60 and uh, Zechariah? We see this in the New Jerusalem. They will bring it, uh, bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Uh, that the new Zion, the heavenly Zion, is going to be jam-packed with the, with the glory and the honor of the nations. I can't even figure out what that means. But when we see the description of the heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22, it is gorgeous. With the gold and the jewels and everything else, it's overwhelming in its beauty and its value. And that is just meant to, I think, be um, symbolic of the true value and beauty that words cannot express. Now, Newton's fear was that people would be so caught up in the music uh, that they would miss the message. And his fear is not without warrant. Talked with someone last week. Someone that they know who is a lesbian and has wants nothing to do with Jesus uh, is loves Messiah. The music but doesn't believe the message. And so I want to encourage you to believe this message. To believe that Messiah is our King, that Jesus is our King, and that Jesus is our priest, and therefore He gives us grace and He gives us peace. And He does this because of His own sacrifice. He sits enthroned and He pours out mercy and grace upon His people from that throne of grace. And if you have faith, it means that you're welcome in God's glorified house. It's a purified house. And you, O sinner, can't ruin it. When the Mormon temple opened a few years ago, I wanted to make sure I could get in. And so we visited. I was curious about what's inside. But see, that's the interesting thing about going to see the Mormon temple. They say, you know, I'm a Christian, but yet I defile their temple. They have to purify it after people like me, the hoi polloi, have been coming through. So that's why they only have the open house for you know, a period of time before they open it for use and before they use it. They purify it, because you mess it up. You can't mess up the living temple, because it's been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ, which removes all blemishes, removes all sins that we commit. But it's not just that. There's more. 
This passage is also quoted in Hebrews 12. And and the author of Hebrews wants them to know, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The Roman Empire was shaken, fell apart. The Mongol Empire was shaken, fell apart. The Ottoman Empire was shaken and fell apart. Let's get a little closer to home here. The Mayan Empire was shaken and fell apart. The Aztec Empire was shaken and fell apart. Let's get a little closer to home perhaps. The British Empire was shaken and fell apart. And don't be mistaken, America will be shaken at some point and will fall apart because it's an earthly thing. The kingdom that cannot be shaken is Christ's kingdom. We're secure. We're protected in His glorious house. In fact, we're part of the glorious furniture, so to speak. Or glorious wall hangings, or we're trophies of grace that fill that place. It's part of what makes it not just a house, but a home. And so we see that Jesus is God's glorified house, and we get to share in that. Just like the moon gets to reflect the the glory of the sun, we're going to shine, brothers and sisters. We're going to shine. So if I kind of take these threads and wrap them together, we see that Jesus came to glorify God's house for our blessing. Well, let's go back to Haiti. Not physically. They have plans to rebuild the National Palace. They released those in 2017. I don't know if they have the resources to build their National Palace. If it is really rebuilt, it may need outside help. Jesus' house, which represents his eternal and global kingdom, is built and made glorious through the conversion of Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Their wealth and honor are incorporated into this house But the real ultimate glory is not the wealth, but it's the men and women made new who reflect God's glory and holiness. So God is building His house on Jesus. And it's more beautiful than we can understand. But beautiful it is. Let's pray. Grant Almighty God that since we are by nature extremely prone to superstition, we may carefully consider the true and right way of serving you, uh, that we offer ourselves spiritually to you and seek no other altar but Christ, and relying on no other priest 
hope to be acceptable and devoted to you, that Christ may grant us the Spirit which has been fully poured upon him, so that we may devote ourselves to you from the heart, and thus continue in our course towards that glory, which is as yet hid under hope, until it shall at length be manifested in due time, when your only begotten Son shall appear with the elect angels for our final redemption. Amen.